0: Let's go to the Lord together one more time in prayer as we open his word. Almighty heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for each one that is gathered together here. Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the freedom that we have to meet and to worship in a in a public manner like this. And Father, we thank you for The blessed freedoms that we have in this nation and father for your word that has gone forth throughout all the world father we ask that you would continue to change hearts through your word and father we ask that you would begin that work anew in each one of us as we in your word find direction in your word we find hope and father in you we find strength and grace for each day father we thank you that you never leave us that you never forsake us. Father, that your presence is always near to hand. Father, we ask that you would give us grace that we might look to you, that we might call upon you every day, and Father, that we might give you thanks for each and every blessing in our lives. Father, we ask that you would be with us now as we look into your word, and Father, that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds, and Father, that you would speak to us through it, and Father that you would uh, allow us to leave this place renewed and recommitted to you and to give ourselves to you fully. Father, we give you praise, we give you thanks in Jesus holy name. Amen. I' to turn this morning with you to the ninth chapter of the book of Second Corinthians, the ninth chapter of the Second Corinthian letter. It's a text I haven't thought about for quite some time, and this morning it's very much on my mind. I pray that it's the Lord's direction that we look at this. You remember the church at Corinth was a church that was uh, really founded in a miraculous way by the grace of God, as the Apostle Paul was led there to preach the gospel in what was one of the most metropolitan cities of its day, a city that was... Filled with universities and education and commerce and trade and lots of money flowing in the streets and lots of, uh, lots of concern for social standing and status and, uh, a lot of, a lot of competing interests even for those who were newly brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Being a Christian in Corinth was a challenge because there were a lot of competing interests. You say, well, that's true of every Christian, and that is true. The city of Corinth was very much uh, for their day like what we live in in our world today. There were theaters, there were universities, there were educated people, there were businesses to run and jobs to be performed and work to do. And the city of Corinth was a city that was a largely Gentile city with a small group of Jews, and the church was founded not only among the Jewish community, but also among the Gentiles. As a result, the church in Corinth was filled with problems. The First Corinthian letter addresses a number of problems, and they are vast. Their abuse of the Lord's Supper was such that they were having essentially a drunken feast in the name of worshiping Jesus Christ. Paul calls them to task for it. They had members of their church who engaged in sins that were so horrible, even the Gentiles were appalled by the works they were doing. And yet there was no action, no discipline taken in those matters. The church of Corinth is known today for the problems that existed. And yet God called them a church. And the apostle wrote a letter to them after he had been away for some time and heard of all the goings on. And he addresses them as the church of Jesus Christ. But in the second Corinthian letter, there is a positive statement made about the church at Corinth. In spite of all that was wrong, in spite of all that they had that was amuck among them, Paul writes in the ninth chapter and says, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them in Macedonia. Paul is writing here to remind them of the importance of giving financially, and specifically he's going to send some brethren to them to collect some funds to care for the poor and the needy Christians of Palestine and Judea. (coughs) This formed the foundation of Paul's final journey as he went through the various cities of Macedonia and then to Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, delivering a physical gift a physical love offering for the saints who were persecuted and cut off from economic uh, stability there in Palestine. So he's writing to them in preparation for this, and he's commending the church. He says, you are forward as touching the ministering to the saints. You're a very giving church, a very giving congregation. Now, this morning, I don't want to talk to you as a church about the need to give, I would say of this congregation here that you are known for your forwardness in giving and ministering. The church at Corinth is addressed in this way, and he says, I want you to be reminded of the importance of this before I send the brethren to you so that I won't have cause to be ashamed of my confident boasting in you. But I want to pick up our reading in verse 5 of this ninth chapter. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, For God loveth a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. If we have a text this morning, it's this. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. We'll come back to our text in a moment. What I want you to understand this morning is that there are a lot of ways of giving. And there's a lot of giving that's required of us. And for this church at Corinth, they were very forward in their giving, that is financially. They were known for their willingness to give financially. It helps that they were a wealthy city. And many of these members of the church were people who were involved in business and they had money. But as Christians, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't want our money. What he wants is our hearts, and he commands our hearts. And that's the message Paul has for this church at Corinth and for you and I today. It's important that we give, but we give it willingly. We give it bountifully out of our heart. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We live in a world today where it's easier for Christians to give a little bit of money than it is to give a little bit of time. It's easier to profess faith in Christ and give money to the church than it is to give our time to attend church or our time to study the word of God. It's easier for us to decide to throw money at a problem than it is to throw our hearts at a problem. And this was the situation at the church at Corinth. Now, Paul is talking about physical needs, physical gifts. But what he's saying is, even as I'm asking you for these funds, even as I'm asking you to give financially, I don't want it to be something that is a matter of covetousness. I don't want it to be a demand that is laid on you and you're giving because I'm asking. Um, You're giving because it's required. I want it to be something you've had time to think about, something you've had time to pray about, something you're prepared for, and I want it to be something that's given out of a heart that is open to the work of the Lord. Earlier today, we talked about the blessing of bringing those who preach the gospel on their way. Supporting the ministry of the word. Well, that's not something we do by constraint because it's required of us. It's something we do because we love the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we embrace that command of the Lord to preach the gospel to every nation, to every kindred, tongue, and people. The Apostle Paul here writes about a heart issue. And he says, whatever we give of ourselves as a man purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity for God loveth the cheerful giver. And then he says this, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. This is a precept, a a concept, a principle that goes beyond physical giving. It goes beyond finances. And that's good because the church has been made up for most of history of a very poor and downcast people. Jesus Christ himself teaches this lesson when he tells us about a, a poor widow, a poor widow who has nothing. She has nothing but one tiny piece of currency, one mite, enough for a day's food. And she takes that and she places it into the offering plate. She gives that to the service of God when she has nothing. And then he says a rich person drops in a great sum of money. Who's given more? Well, this widow has. Why? Because she gave all that she had. And what does your heart compel you to give in the Lord's service? What does my heart compel me to give? Again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about that precious commodity, time. Those precious things we desire, our priorities, what's important to us, what's most important to me. Well, let me remind you, whatever's most important to you, that's what you worship. And that's the idea Jesus is presenting when he says you can't love God and mammon, God and money. Well, the principle's bigger than money. You can't love anything as much or more than you love God without wholly abandoning God and your faith in Christ. So when you and I claim a profession of faith, when we claim to be Christians, the question is, is he what's most important to us? Is his service most important? Well, it doesn't take much more than looking around to see there's a lot of people who have other priorities in their lives. And maybe that someone is sometimes me. When we're challenged to serve God or to serve our own selfish desires, how often do we choose self over God? How many times have you had this nagging feeling you need to open your Bible? You need to read the Word of God. But you have friends who want you to go do something with them. Or your boss is calling and saying, I know you're off work, but there's this project you need to spend time with. Or maybe you say, I'm going to turn on the TV for a minute before bed. And three hours later, you're still watching the news or some entertainment. Where's your priority? What's valuable to you? And... You know, there's a lot of good things we engage ourselves with. It's good to work to support a family. It's good to labor with your hands to have finances to support the church and to support the needs of others and even to support the proclamation of the gospel. Those are all good intentions. But they amount to nothing if they get between us and God himself. You say, I only have so much time. So many hours in the day. There's only so much I can do or accomplish. The responsibilities that devolve upon each individual today are beyond belief. The expectations that we have for ourselves or that others place upon us, they're daunting. And in many ways, they're impossible. Every moment is valuable. So what do we do? God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. The problem is whatever we put off, we say I'm going to do these other things first and I'll get to that later. We never get to it. And that's why Jesus Christ commands that we put Him First. What does he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things, they'll be added to you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The principle of first fruits giving set up in the Old Testament Scripture is there for a purpose, to show us the reality. What is that that if you give to God first, you're going to be provided for? The rest will take care of itself. It's going to be okay. David wrote a long time ago of his own experience, his own knowledge. He said in the 37th Psalm, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet, I, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. What's he saying? He's saying God takes care of his own. We can trust him to provide our needs. When Jesus came preaching the gospel, it was a challenge to people that meant if they followed him, their entire lives would be turned upside down. You remember the the blind man in John chapter 9, the man who was born without his sight? Jesus gave sight to the man. And this miracle was known by all, and the man was called to account for it, and the the rulers were demanding of him, how did you get your sight? And he tells them over and over again, well, this man named Jesus, he, he spit on the ground and put clay on my eyes and told me, go wash. And I washed, and now I see. And over and over again they asked him, how did this happen? What do you say about this man? And of course he had that great profession at the end where he said, you know, I don't know whether he'd be of God or not, but what I do know is I was blind and now I see. But in the midst of all of that, they called the man's parents to give account. They said, is this your son who was born blind? Whom ye say was born blind? What did the parents say? They said, yes, this is our son, but as far as... By what means he now seeth, we know not. Ask him. And the scripture tells us they did this because they knew that anyone who confessed Jesus Christ would be cast out of the synagogue. They'd be cast out of their society. It was a hard thing to follow Jesus Christ. So Jesus sent forth his disciples preaching the gospel. He said, go into every village, every town, every city, and you go and you tell the things that I've told you. And if you go into a house and they receive you, then you let your peace be upon it. And if they receive you not, you shake the dust of your feet and you walk away. But in the midst of all of that, what does he say? He says, following me is going to require leaving some things. And if following me means you leave houses or lands or fathers and mothers or sisters and brothers... If leaving me, if following me means leaving everything that you have, he says you'll receive many fold in my kingdom, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, houses, lands, everything that you have need of and eternal life. What does Paul say here to the Corinthians? God's able to make all grace abound towards you. That ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. What do you have things for? What's the purpose of your job? What's the purpose of your family? What's the purpose of your life that you live? If not to bring glory to God. To be good works in His kingdom. God promises sufficiency in all things, that we may abound to every good work. So you look over the the pages of history. You see Christians giving their all. You see men and women of God suffering and even dying in the service to God. You say, well, that didn't work out well for them. But then you look a little deeper and you see men and women rejoicing. Rejoicing with Peter that they were counted worthy to suffer. Rejoicing that they suffered the loss of all things. That Jesus Christ might be glorified. Might be magnified in them. The call of the gospel says. You give. You give as Christ has given to you. You love as Christ has loved you. And He is, after all, the great example. What has Jesus Christ given in terms of wealth, in terms of privilege, in terms of esteem? Well, Paul writes to the Philippian church and he says of Jesus Christ. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who did what? Christ Jesus is God. Christ Jesus was found in the form of God, the very person of God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What did Jesus Christ lay aside in his condescension? He left heaven itself. He left the right hand of the Father on high. And he stooped down to be born in a lowly circumstance. To grow up. A human child. Subject to human parents. Subject to the very laws and rules that he himself had ordained for others. He became obedient. Obedient unto death. And Jesus Christ displays this again and again in his earthly ministry. He says, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And Jesus entered into a life of essential poverty. Now there were those who traveled with him, who carried the bag. There were people of wealth who gave of their substance. And what did Jesus do? He, He gave it away. He cared for those who were in need. So much so that when it was time to pay taxes, what did Jesus do? He said, go and draw some fish out of the sea. And you'll find in them the money needed to pay the taxes. Jesus Christ gave until He could give no more. And all of that pales in comparison to the real gift of the Savior. The Savior gave his life. And he makes no bones about it. What does he say? He says the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He says you are my friends. I've called you friends. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So Paul writes to this church. The Holy Spirit writes to the church and to you and me. And says, I don't command of you that you give. Not under duress. Not under any command or rule. There have been some arguments in churches in times past and maybe even presently about the question of tithing. Set forth in the Old Testament. A tenth of all that you have shall be given unto the Lord. There's been arguments. Is tithing required in the New Testament church today? I would argue the New Testament Scripture says there's no need for tithing because a New Testament Christian gives so much more than that 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 doesn't even come into question. Because if you understand what the Lord Jesus Christ has given for you, you're going to give your all. Again, I'm not talking just about money. But in the New Testament church, if you remember after the day of Pentecost when God's presence was felt and known in a visible way, when when people's hearts were turned to God and they were brought to a place of acknowledging their their true sin and their true deserts, and they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God in such a very real and manifest way, What happened? The house of God, they had all things in common. They shared one with another so much so that men such as Barnabas came and took all that they had and sold it and laid the money at the apostles' feet. Does that mean you should give everything? You should financially bankrupt yourself and turn it over to the church? No! But your heart, your desire should be to give your all to Jesus Christ, to His kingdom, to His people. And Paul says, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. When we examine our own lives and we examine the existence of the Christian witness today and we wonder why is... There's so little manifest fruit. Why is it so little evident that there's any real revival in the streets or that there's really any impact in the lives of the Lord's people? Where's the bounty? Are we sowing bountifully? Are we making Christ and his cause the priority in our life, in all things? I can tell you in my life the answer has been no, not really. And how are we measuring that commitment? How are we measuring that devotion? Paul says, I don't judge myself. I don't measure myself by another man's measure. How much of the time are we looking around and saying, well, am I doing as much as brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so? How am I stacking up compared to this or that other Christian? Do we examine our church and say, how are we stacking up to other churches? Of other orders or of our own faith and order? Where are we measuring ourselves? He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. What's he saying? Simply he's saying you get what you put in. In another place he says, cast your bread upon the waters. It will return unto you in many days. You get what you put in. The one that sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. I've experienced that in my own life when it comes to the Word of God. If I read a little bit, I get a very little blessing. If I study a little bit, I get a very little bit of knowledge and very little application. But if I bury myself in God's word, if I make his word my thoughts and my meditations and what I'm thinking about day and night, then when I face difficulty, when I face challenge, the word of God springs instantly to my mind and I, I receive back again the time, the effort that I've put into his word. We can buy Satan's lies and say there are other priorities. There are other things more important. And we can sacrifice what we know is good for something else that in the moment seems more important or seems better. But all too often at the end of the day, we're left with nothing. Because there's one treasure that is valuable. And that treasure is Jesus Christ. And if we put him first, if we seek him first and his righteousness, all these others will be added to us. It's very tempting to believe to believe that our priority should be our family, our home, our marriage. To think, I have to please my husband. I have to please my wife. I have to care for my children. And if we make any person, even those dearest to us, our idol, so that we make their happiness, their pleasure, their priority. Less important than doing what God's Word says. The reality is that we will likely lose that which we cling to the most. If we say my job is the most important thing, my career, when I'm successful, when I've made it to the top, then I'll serve God. It's likely that our aims, our goals, our career will crumble and we'll be left with nothing. And perhaps that could be the best that might happen to us because alternatively we might get to the top and have forgotten Christ entirely. What a terrible place to be. Jesus tells us the story of a man who said, I'm going to labor, I'm going to work, I'm going to grow my business, I'm going to build bigger and bigger barns, I'm going to store up wealth, and then I'm going to kick back and I'm going to enjoy life, I'm going to take my ease. And what does Jesus say? Thou fool, for thou knowest not that this night your soul will be required of you. We don't know that we have tomorrow. So we can't put off to tomorrow the service that God commands today. So how are we going to make it all work? We have this life. We have to live. We have responsibilities. We have challenges. We have all of this piled upon us. Being a Christian is about trusting It's about a sovereign God who holds all things in his hand. A sovereign who nothing escapes and nothing surprises. And being a Christian is about trusting him. We're all familiar with the scriptures. In the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans. We're told if He spared not His own Son, but gave Him up freely for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, that He gave His all for you? If the answer is yes, then you must believe that He will give you all that you stand in need of. God is Able. Do you believe God is able? Yeah, Paul's talking here about physical giving, about money. But the principle goes so far beyond that. God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. You say there is you say there isn't enough time. God's in control of time. You say there's too many tasks that are piled on my plate, and I'm the only one that can do them. Serve God first. Put Him first and see what happens. I could tell you of personal experience. I could tell you of times at work where there was not time for me to spend studying God's Word. There wasn't time for me to go where I felt I needed to go and preach. There wasn't time for me to give to God. But on those rare occasions when I put Him first, when I dropped it all and said it'll be there when I get back, miracles happened. Problems resolved themselves. Incompetent subordinates stepped up and did their jobs. Miracles do happen. God is able to make all grace abound towards you. You remember when Elijah, in the time of great famine, had been supplied with food and sustenance by God Himself until that ran out. And the Lord led him to the home of a widow in a neighboring country. And there the woman was at the last of her grain, had a little bit of meal left, and she was about to bake a cake with a little meal and a little oil, and she and her child were going to starve to death. The prophet of God came to her, By the leading of the Lord. And he said, take that which you have and bake a cake for me. She said, this is all I have. We're going to eat it and we're going to die. He said, I understand. Bake me a cake. And the woman did as she was commanded. It made no sense. There was no hope there. And what happened? Well, she dumped out all of her meal. And there was a little bit of meal left. And she did that again and again and again. And the meal never ran out. And the cruise of oil was never empty. Why? Because my God is able. And the same God is still able today. That ye always having all sufficiency in all things. What he doesn't say is you'll always have an overabundance in all things. And that's on purpose. Serving God is not about having everything visible that we need for the future. We're not commanded to do that. In fact, we're really not allowed to do that. If a Christian has his finances padded so that he's financially secure for the rest of his life and for generations after, that should cause one to examine oneself. God is able to abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency. You may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. This is David describing the, the nature, the character of a righteous man. In Psalm 112, he speaks of those who delight in the commandments of God. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth, the generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established, he shall not be afraid till he shall see his desire upon his enemies. He hath dispersed, he hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever, his horn shall be exalted forever. This is a description of the righteous, this is a description of the church of Jesus Christ. Where does this come from, this ability to disperse, this ability to care for those in need? It comes from the God who owns all things the God who will see that you always have all sufficiency in all things to abound in every good work. He then says in verse 10, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. You see, he says God is the source of all wealth. He's the source of all power and ability. He's the source of every good work. So how do you get it? Well, there's an entire movement in the world of so-called Christianity. We call it derisively the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine that says, well, serve Jesus Christ and he owes you a blessing. If you do what God says, he's obligated to bless you and you'll have a lot of stuff. You know, sow your seed of faith and with that you'll gain wealth. Well, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because God is not brought under obligation to men. And if the motive is to achieve success, to achieve carnal goals, God's not going to honor that because God looks on the heart. So what does Paul say here? He says God is the one who increases fruit. God is the one who increases righteousness. God is the one working in you. And the motivation for blessing is that thanksgiving will redound and that God will receive the glory. You can't trick God. You can't make God believe that you're serving Him for his glory, when you're really pursuing personal aims. It doesn't work that way. This isn't a method for how to get rich. Quite the opposite. This is an instruction to trust God and to give God thanks for what you have. What do you have today? You have a job? Thank God for it. You have a family? Thank God for them. You have a little bit of knowledge. Thank God for it. Paul writes to the same Corinthian church and he says, you're boasting in what you have, but what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Whatever you are, whatever you have, and whatever you will be, that's God working in you. And he's doing it for one reason, so that you can give him thanks and acknowledge him in it. And that's the message to this Corinthian church. Yes, they have wealth. And Paul's admonishing them, give it away. Why? Because your trust is not to be in riches, but in the God who authored those riches. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. He concludes this chapter in this way. For the administration of this service not only supplyeth the one of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings to God. That is, the, the wealth that you share, the gift that you give, the poor of Jerusalem, they're going to give thanks to God for it and not to you. And that's a reason to give it. Powerful motive for anonymous giving, right? They're going to give thanks to God on your behalf because of this ministration. Was well, by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection to the, to the God, <coughs> unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and to all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Unspeakable, the gift of God. What gift is that? The gift that allows you to give of yourself for His glory. And to have physical ways that you can give and God can be magnified in you. You see, the God that we profess to serve has given His all for us. And we love one another because Christ has loved us. And we forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake hath also forgiven us. And we give one to another of our time, of our finances, of all that we have. Why? Because Christ has given to us. And that's a blessing that we have of God. This unspeakable gift that we are able to return something to God. We're able to return praise to God for his riches to us in Christ Jesus. So the message to this church is, don't give covetously. Don't give grudgingly, saying, I know I ought to do this, but I don't want to. I know I should give this time of mine to God's service, to his word, to his people, to his church. But I've got other things that really need to be done. You know, the Word of God says to set aside at least one day of the week to His service. The Word of God tells us this clearly. And as Christians, we observe the first day of the week as a holy day for the Lord. But you know, if I just give that day of extra labor, I can get ahead at work if I just make that a priority. Or maybe I have an opportunity for a job or for some form of happiness if I move to a place where there isn't a church of God that meets. And I know the word of God says forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, but this opportunity, it's so great. Surely the Lord will bless me in this opportunity and surely later I'll be able to return praise to him. Don't give grudgingly. Don't give selfishly. And don't give sparingly, holding back. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? When the church at Jerusalem was moved to give and Barnabas led the way giving all that he had, other people followed suit and the church was moved as a whole to sell all that they had and have all things in common. And there was a couple who were apparently fairly well off, at least they had multiple pieces of property and Ananias and Sapphira by name. And they sold their property. They sold what they had. And they took the proceeds of it, the money they had from it, and they came and they laid it at the apostles' feet. But not all that they had. Only half they held some back. They gave sparingly. But the communication to the apostles was, "We're doing just like everyone else. Here's the money we have from our sale of our property." And the Holy Spirit revealed the truth. The apostle said, is this all that you have? Yes. Boom. He dies. Slain by the Holy Spirit. Why? He lies to God. He's giving sparingly. His wife comes and does the same. The Holy Spirit strikes him down that all men may fear. Don't give grudgingly. Don't give of constraint. Don't give sparingly. Understand, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. We're all familiar with that statement, with that text. What does it mean, as a man purposeth in his heart? Well, certainly that is something other than a hard fast line that says this is how much you ought to give how often is your first thought I don't think I want to give anything and then later you talk yourself into giving a little bit more that's never happened to me not once I hear of a need my initial thought is to give more I remember when Brother Jeff first was contacted by a brother in the Philippines and began to prepare to go to the Philippines on that first journey. I remember talking to him about it and hearing him talk of it. And I remember just having this overwhelming desire to go with him on that journey, to support that work, to be a part of of the work God was doing in the Philippines. But at that time in life, I had a whole lot on my plate. I wasn't in a position to to do that, it didn't seem. And I certainly had a lot of plans for how I was going to serve God. Preparation, I was going to undertake. Education, was starting a job and... I had a lot of reasons why not to make that decision. And I didn't go. And the work went on just fine without me. But my initial purpose was to pour myself into that work and that ministry. And I talked myself out of it. I had lots of plausible reasons. There have been other times in life when similar things have happened. Opportunities have presented themselves and in my heart, I've known what was right, but I've held back. I've justified another course. There have been times when opportunities have come to help individuals with needs. And my initial thought was to essentially give all that I had. And then I drew back. That's unreasonable. That's unreasonable. How am I going to live? How am I going to care for myself? How am I going to care for my family? I can't do what I want to do. What does the Lord say? Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. That widow gave her only might. And Jesus says, who gave more? The one who gave the most money or the one who gave all that she had? Again, this principle extends far beyond financial giving. This is about our heart. It's about our commitment. It's about our love, not for people, not for the church, but for Jesus Christ himself. How much is too much? According as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Give what God commands of you. Give your heart, your service, your commitment to him. And understand that God is able to make all grace abound towards you. God owns everything and God controls everything. And that means if you walk forward trusting him you can rest assured that no matter what, He is going to magnify His name in you. And He's going to provide for your needs. There's sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Not just for salvation, but for today and tomorrow and the day after that. It's never a wrong decision to do what Christ says is right. That's really the message. We get so wrapped up in our heads trying to decide what's the right choice, what's the right decision, how do I handle this problem? And it's very rarely that God's word is not clear, that we don't know what the answer is. The problem is we don't like the answer. It makes us uncomfortable. It wars against something in our flesh. There's sufficiency in Jesus Christ. And that sufficiency extends from the spiritual needs to the emotional needs to the physical and the financial needs. And we can trust him. And together as his people, as we serve him, our best desire, our best result, the best outcome of all of this is that we'll be able to say, Thanks be to God. God has provided. God has been sufficient. The Apostle Paul learned this the hard way. He was serving God. He was preaching the gospel. He was giving his entire self to Christ. And then he was afflicted a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, he says, to buffet me, to unsettle him. You know, Paul is sailing along stable. He knows what he's doing. He's being successful. He's being effective. And the word of God is going forth. The church of Jesus Christ is prospering. And his ministry is redounding to the glory of God. And now this messenger of Satan comes and buffets him. And this smooth sailing, he's now tossed to and fro. He prays to God, remove this thorn from my flesh. Lord, just set things back on an even keel. Fix this problem. Three times he begged God, deliver me, deliver me. I'm being hindered by this weakness that has come upon me. And the Lord answered his prayer, his plea, his cry. Lord answered and said, My grace is sufficient unto thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What was that message for Paul? It was when you're at the end of yourself and you don't have the ability, you don't have the strength, you are now weak, you're right where I want you to be. Because my strength will shine forth in your weakness. So we're overwhelmed with responsibilities, with challenges, with requirements. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough, there's not enough money at the end of the month. And we don't know how we're going to do what God has put it in our heart to do. God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. What are we going to do? Trust Him. Why? My grace is sufficient unto Thee. He's able to make all grace abound to you in all things sufficiently. We spend far too much time in the church of Jesus Christ talking about what we would do if circumstances were differently. Or what needs to change so that we can serve God effectively, so that we can do the work He's given us to do. But all of that presupposes that God is not satisfied with our circumstance. That God is not aware of our circumstance or that God can do nothing about our circumstance And oh, if we only had different circumstances, then we would be able to be so much better at serving God. But see, God's sovereignty is a principle which should teach us that our circumstance is what it is because God is pleased for it to be exactly what it is. So what then? What then? Our God is able. He's able in this circumstance Right here, right now, to abound to you and to me. To give us sufficiency that we may abound to every good work. We can't blame God for our lack of good works. Our lack of service. It's not God's responsibility. That adage that Brother Zach is so fond of quoting For all the good that I do, God gets all the credit, all the glory. For all that I don't do that I should, I get all the responsibility, all the accountability. That's so true. Because our God is able. What a blessing that is because that means if I turn to him today, if I go to him and I pray to him and I seek him and I commit myself to serve him, I know that He is not only able, but willing. And He will abound. All sufficiency for all things, that I might abound in good works, that I might magnify His name. And in the church of Jesus Christ, if we will put Christ first, if we'll magnify His name in our lives, in our congregations, then we will not believe the work that God will do in our days. He says, I'll work a work in your days that you will not believe. And God is still able. He's still on His throne. Thank you for your attention and for your prayer this morning. I pray the Lord will bless His Word and apply it to each you.